This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, John Clegg is back to chat with us about the power of Mother Earth, all of the rocks, all of the rivers, the gravity, the slides, the fact that we just can't control it, and maybe we need to be able to respect it. Handy Andy is back with info on how you can fall asleep when your partner snores a ton, and how getting your uh, little tyke on a Peloton-like bike for exercise might not be a very good thing. Adele shared the story of reuniting with a long-lost teacher. It actually happened during a show. 20 years, one of her favorite teachers. I got us thinking, who's your favorite teacher? So we chat about that, and we even hear from our executive producer, Kelsey Campbell. She chats about her favorite teacher that she met 10 years later, and it didn't go very well. This is The Shift Podcast. Uh, Adele had a strange reunion and it's really cool now my teacher mr zelinsky was pretty awesome uh my junior high shop teacher mr bain was pretty cool he would go golfing with us at the end of the school year so that was fun too and uh you know we have these teachers that we hold close to our hearts and it's it's pretty awesome uh, dj bk shares about his uh, husband and wife couple thing that they had going on some thruple yeah, uh, not my husband and wife, but uh, a oh. husband and wife teacher. Um, teacher combo. Combo, yes. English teachers. I just, I imagine that being a riveting conversation in their house, right? Yeah, I wonder if they, yeah, because like one had me in their class before the other. I wonder if they like debrief and was like, this is what you should expect yeah. from this this kid. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, probably. When they're cooking together. Yeah. Spatula, spatula, wherefore art thou, spatula? <laughs> that was more. Mrs. Thompson was a lot like that. Yeah, she would be yeah. a lot like that. Mr. Thompson was the football coach too, so he was. Uh, oh, there you go. He was a bit more direct. Our guest producer here on the shift is Jason Manawas. Sunshine Sparkle Pants is his nickname from when he used to be on the show a year ago. And um, now, did you have a favorite teacher, Jay, that that really impacted your life that you can speak to? Yeah, I did. I had two. So one was an English teacher. Um, her name was Miss Match. Uh, she's the first person <laughs> that I really thought was like a kind person. Uh, she was always helping people. She really taught me to be like a good person. And I've really learned a lot from her. The second one's actually a pretty funny story because um, he was my old law teacher. And then he became the president of the Teachers Association here where I live. Um, and uh, now he's a regular contributor on the show that I produce uh, from Monday to Friday. So he like it was funny when I booked them. So when I booked them like, hey, Mr. Westfall, I know this is weird, but I'm a producer now. and wondering if you can come on the show. And he, he remembered me right away, which is always good. I think we hear stories sometimes of uh, the teacher not forgetting who the student was. So this was cool because he actually remembered me. And I remember uh, Simi at the time, who's the host that I produce for now. She actually asked him, oh, what was he like in school? Uh -oh. What were his grades like live on air? And uh, that was kind of embarrassing because I did not do too well in that class. Uh, but uh, he still does remember me. So that's a good thing. Love it. Adele had an onstage reunion with a teacher she hadn't seen since she was a preteen. Um, brought all kinds of um, all kinds of tears to her show. Adele was crying. Uh, the pair were reunited face-to-face -face for the first time in more than 20 years. And here's what ET Canada had about this story with Adele. Now to tonight's good vibes. When you were younger, mm -hmm. was there someone who 
kind of supported you or inspired you. And just like that, Adele was left speechless during her ITV special, An Audience with Adele in London. British actress Emma Thompson asked the Easy On Me singer about her childhood role model. And while Adele talked candidly about an English teacher who changed her life, the singer wasn't ready for what was next. Is she here? Is she here? She's here tonight. Still teaching? No, no. What do you do? Are you just no, I'm just looking after my family. Oh, my <laughs> I just can't. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. Oh. Don't cry. Thank you. So, what an incredible situation to run into that in the performance, right? How cool! Now, one of the uh, uh, shift heads here that that is a part of the show that we don't ever get to hear from, and she's super awesome, is Kelsey Campbell. She's the executive producer. Her job is basically the business of the shift. And so it's she she builds the design with me, and we work on all these things together. Uh, she's my coach and my mentor, too. And Kelsey's super awesome. We finally get to have Kelsey on here with us. So I'm glad to share uh, Kelsey with you here. Now, Kelsey, you had a very special teacher that you carried very close to your heart that you shared with me. How old were you with when when you had this teacher? Was it about eight years old? No, I would have been turning eleven, grade six. Okay, your eleven year old hat, and I want to hear about this teacher. I want to hear why this teacher was so amazing and why this is the best teacher ever. Mr. Hayes, literally, my heart flutters a little bit thinking about him. Like he had such <laughs> he had such an impact. Not that he was a hottie; he was an older gentleman. Um, but I just think about the impact that he made, and I I wish that more teachers spent more time kind of instilling proper standards and behavior and manners. And he was the guy who uh, we were only allowed to write in every subject in grade six in cursive writing. And, it, mm. and if you made a mistake, you couldn't use, there was no whiteout. You had to take a ruler and perfectly draw a, a line through the word and continue on with your, your cursive writing. And I just thought that was really great. And um, he just pushed everyone to the next level. And he just, it, it just seemed that he he was so invested. He was the type of guy that just understood coaching in the way that the kids that were struggling, it wasn't that he would get in their face and yell at them. He would kind of tailor the course to him, them. And uh, I was a big surprise, a major overachiever. And I had my own spelling words, like the rest of the class would do spelling words. And then I would get my own yeah. spelling test because <laughs> <laughs> I was always chasing the 21 out of 20. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Over the top nerding happening. Okay, so Mr. Hayes, you said? Yes. Um, so Mr. Hayes, obviously a very special place in your heart, uh, impacted your learning in a big way. And now you shared with me that you ran into Mr. Hayes. You had a chance to uh, talk to him later. What happened? How did this work? It was so exhilarating. I uh, took my grandfather to this antique car show, and uh, we're looking at this old truck. My my grandfather was a longtime farmer, and we're looking at these old dairy trucks. And I look over, and who's standing next to me but Mr. Hayes. And I just thought, this is going to blow his mind. Like, you don't forget me, Kelsey Campbell. Like, I must have been his <laughs> His favorite student of all time as he was my favorite teacher of all time 21 out of 20 <laughs> you don't forget the 21 out of 20 girl <laughs> and so i just turned and it was one of those things where you don't think to like really introduce yourself right because we clearly had such a connection so mr hayes <laughs> and he's like you and my heart just <laughs> oh, sucked no. like you know when you get the 
Oh, you. <laughs> oh, yeah. You got the hey, guy. Yeah. Hey, sport. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I had to do the whole, um, I'm, I'm Kelsey, grade six. And he's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I've taught a lot of kids. Uh, so that was a bit of a shock because I, I think I I'd spent a lot of time. I love hearing people's teacher stories and why they love their teachers uh, and the impact that teachers have had on them. And I've read so many poems and articles and columns that teachers wrote about going to like their students' weddings and the relationship that they ended up having with them and how they changed their life. So I just thought we we're going to have this incredible, now I was old enough to really have a friendship with the man that changed my life and basically mm -hmm. got the handshake and the send off and the good luck with your future. <laughs> good luck sport is what you got. <laughs> oh no. So what's your takeaway? Were you heartbroken really? Well, first of all, so that was 11 years old. How many years had passed between these two? I was 21 when I saw him so again. You you looked a lot different. You realize that 10 years later, I don't, like that alone yeah, would have been hard. I guess you, I, I appreciate that you're giving him some credit, but again, you, I, yeah. I think I just really believed that I was unforgettable. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, and you probably weren't a whole lot taller. Let's just be honest. No, I haven't grown a lot. I'm still five, <laughs> two, three quarters. <laughs> you got to include the three quarters. You know, you're legitimately five, two when you include the three quarters. Um, so my sister uh, she, her favorite teacher, now my sister's a teacher, I've shared that, um, her favorite teacher was Mr. Rooker in grade five from McQuinna and Port Alberni, but she's friends with him on Facebook today. So I don't know if that adds salt to your wound or have you chased Mr. Hayes to be Facebook friends? I don't want to say that I'm resentful of your sister. I'm obviously very happy for her that she's been able to have that relationship. No, honestly, it was so great to see him again. And it meant so much to me. It didn't really matter that he didn't remember me. It meant so much to me to have the opportunity to tell him what an impact he had and how much I respected him as a teacher because, uh, I think anyone working in education is really an unsung hero and uh, you don't get a lot of feedback from students at the time. And mostly you're getting criticism from parents at the time, if you have any engagement with them at all. And so the opportunity to tell him, like, I still remember word for word, some of the things that you, you told me about good literature and, and how to, you know, give a crap and that it still resonates today. I hope that that, that he took that back with him and that that resonated for him. How's your handwriting? Is it still good? It's not bad. And I, uh, yeah. I, every once in a while, when I sit down and actually write poetry, because that's where it really shone, I still write in cursive. And if I make a mistake, I draw a line with a ruler. That's, that's for Mr. Hayes. Kelsey Campbell, thanks for being here, buddy. Executive producer of The Shift. This is The Shift Podcast. Well, we've seen in... BC, of course, all the impact of the weather and the, the dirt and the slides and the holy moly. Uh, now with the prospect of more rain coming to BC and another weather storm, I, I wanted to get into conversation. We, we were brainstorming here on the shift with the crew and are we complacent sort of came up or maybe our ego is in the way. And, and John Clegg, uh, earth sciences nerd <laughs> lovingly. I mean that lovingly, John. Um, uh, it's true though. Uh, you know, I feel like, John, we've become, it's almost like our ego is way out of whack or we're too complacent as humans. And let, let me set you free with my notion, at least how I look at this. Every time I drive through the mountains, I look at the Rockies. And if you've never seen the Rockies all across Canada, you need to see the Rockies because the Rockies, you can see all of the lines. You can see how these, these sort of lines of history of rock 
have built up and then they've been pushed and squished and they're pointing to the sky. You can see them curve. And the thing that we don't often tell ourselves, we look at them and go, oh, those are so pretty. What we don't remind ourselves is, by the way, that's two chunks of dirt that have squished against each other so hard, they bent and moved that high. We forget how powerful this planet is. And we think that we're the boss and we're not. John Clegg, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. Uh, yeah, I am an earth science nerd. I live and breathe earth science. <laughs> um, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I mean, that's what uh, uh, geologists uh, kind of find so fascinating is we don't see those processes operate. We see the consequences of them. So uh, just as one extreme example, the highest point on the earth's surface is the top of Mount Everest. And you can find fossils of sea sea animals in the rocks at the top of Mount Everest. They were once at sea level, those rocks have been shoved up due to the collision of India against Asia. Um, but it's taken a long time. It's taken million, millions of years to do that. But we do see the processes that operate uh, that are extremely destructive to, to people that actually produce that change. The earth is a very active planet and we get we get earthquakes, we get tsunamis, we get uh, gravity um, producing big landslides. Um, those are all the processes that have shaped the planet and produced the Rockies, for example, the collision of plates. Um, and I think we don't fully, you're right, we're complacent about that. I mean, these are processes that are spectacular in character, but they can, they're also destructive processes. So we have to um, live on the surface of this planet with those processes operating. Another example being volcanic eruptions. And we have to cope with what people kind of refer to as Mother Nature, you know, kind of causing those uh, big events that uh, shape the planet, but also, you know, kind of overwhelm us often in terms of their, their severity and, and their size. We forget about that. And um, we often get caught up. There's two things I'm left with with what you just said. First of all, the millions of years for the rocks to move. And we sit at our, look at our lifetime, all wrapped up in our human selves going, you know, John and Shane, we're so important. This is, a, this is the world. This is the state of the world for now and forever. When in realities, let's just, let's just be real about it. I mean, we're a blip of a biological process that's not going to, uh, not ever going to be remembered. I mean, we, we can, we, you know, pushing daisies, if you will, we, we can hopefully affect humanity, but when it comes to the function of the earth being the earth, man, like this is a blip in time. We're not even a drop in the ocean when it comes to the impact ourselves. So I think we have to remember that because mother nature or whatever you want to call it, she's a powerful beast. Oh yeah. No, no doubt about that. Um, and humans have to stick handle their way through that. You know, I mean, uh, there are large numbers of people that are injured or killed by these natural processes every year. And um, they're people that kind of got in the way of uh, a disaster, if I can put it that way. Um, disasters are local and regional in scope. They don't affect the entire planet. Um, but if you happen to be there at the wrong time in the wrong place, um, it's going to, it possibly could overwhelm you. 
An example of that would be people who were kind of trapped by the rainfall-driven floods and mudslides that we experienced out here uh, last week, or people that are caught in the area of a very, very large earthquake. You know, we get earthquakes on the West Coast, so that's something we have to worry about. These events are rare, so I, I think people inherently don't take them too seriously. You know, they don't plan properly for them. And that's almost understandable because you've got daily things in your, you know, that you do that potentially could kill you, like drive a vehicle, you get into an accident and die. People kind of put uh, the risks that they face in, in a, sort of a line of priority. Um, but, you know, the overall regional impact of a big disaster is, is huge. It goes beyond a single person. It affects the entire uh, uh, society in the, in the region where it does occur. So it's, it's a kind of a more of a societal impact than an individual one. Engineering is amazing what those folks accomplish, right? When you think about piles in the ground and bridges and holy, really though, we're getting better at mitigating it, but there's still nothing that it still can't be f- forgotten the impact of when the mountain moves, the mountain moves, right? I mean, even in Abbotsford right now with, you know, with Nooksack and the water coming from the United States and just the inability to flush that water out because of what's coming from the interior and down the mountains at the same time, you know, those are just good reminders that, that, we got it. We kind of got to ride this out, which does raise the question about, you know, the big one, John, and we've all often heard about the big one. There was a great tweet that someone said, it's like, if this is a rainstorm that cripples BC or is this dangerous in the way we're doing things, what happens for the big one? I mean, holy. Yeah. Um, I, I worried about that. Uh, I do worry about that. We, you know, kind of governments haven't take, have taken some action, to attempt to minimize the lesson, I would say, the impact of a big earthquake on our infrastructure. But on the other hand, I also look at the the heat dome event that we had that killed 600 people in in the Metro Vancouver area. And what caught me was that was predictable. It wasn't like an earthquake that you can't predict, but that particular heat event was forecast a week before it arrived. And yet the government an individual still drop the ball. Right. Yeah, we knew that was coming, right? We knew that for quite a few days. We knew that was coming, but uh, an earthquake, I think we're going to be, again, caught off guard. I don't think for whatever reason that societally or due to maybe in problems in the way that we prepare collectively for disasters that we're not going to have another kind of drop balling episode when the next natural disaster. Uh, so that kind of caught me because I basically my much of my interests are in earthquakes and their secondary effects. And uh, I thought and I do think to some extent that we are, uh, you know, improving public infrastructure, particularly critical infrastructure uh, for that inevitable event whenever it does occur. But I just think that, you know, kind of from a societal perspective, we're going to be in a big mess when that happens. And, we yeah. haven't set ourselves up properly to deal with it. Maybe we can't. Maybe it's just not feasible, given the rarity of these events, to have a an adequate plan in place to deal with them. That, you know, I'm telling you something that 
kind of is discouraging to me, you know, that we should, knowing the consequences of these big events, we should be able to better prepare for them. But for whatever reason, you know, I think uh, we're just not, we're not ready for something like that. And another example is just the pandemic. You know, we kind of muck that up to a certain extent. We didn't respond well. And yet, um, you know, the medical community had been telling us that it was inevitable. And and that's very predictable. Well, even the PPE conversation, right? Like we gave away essentially the, the, um, the ability to create the protective equipment that we needed. Yeah. uh, Right. And so that, that to me becomes the concerning part uh, in all of this. When we look at this conversation, John, I mean, of course it becomes a humanity conversation as much as it does a mother nature, earth sciences conversation, because that's, you know, it's the action reaction, right. Uh, uh, Action and consequence outcome. So it does get confusing, but it is sort of that harsh reminder that the power that's behind all of this is going to happen no matter what. And and this is one of those things about cli- the conversation around climate change where I don't like it. And I don't mean it like cli- climate change doesn't exist. I'm not saying that. I'm saying this is where when we duck and hide behind the, cli- the climate change conversation allows the government to, well, us as humans, not even the government. I mean, we can blame them all day. But the us as people, it allows us to hide behind some sort of storyline that it's not our fault, right? Just to your point, we don't have, no one's coming to save us. And this might be very philosophical to talk about around earth sciences, but no one's coming to save us. We've got to take the responsibility for ourselves. And when we look at the, 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 the mask of climate change as a conversation, as an excuse, well, climate change caused it. Well, no, actually, you know, for 20 years, they've talked about those levees. They've talked about that river. They've talked about Nooksack for decades. You know, it's not climate change that caused this to happen. It's a lack of action from 20, 30 years ago that didn't protect it on a normal day, excluding the conversation about a degree and a half, right? And so I find that we get ourselves caught and it's the exact same thing as that complacency of looking up at the mountains and forgetting, by the way, that used to be the ocean floor, right? Yeah, exactly. And I I find that we get so tangled up in these uh, excuses that it's it's not our fault. In a sense, you're drawing out of me things I normally wouldn't say, but um, being an academic, I suppose, being a nerd, um, you know, kind of we we don't realize kind of that our efforts to mitigate are are pretty minuscule compared to the forces at play. So it's one thing to strengthen your infrastructure, but you're never, ever, you've never had the resources or the ability to strengthen everything to the point where it's bomb-proof from mother nature the worst that mother nature can throw at you yeah and uh we're, we see those types of events and they just overwhelm society when they happen the really rare big events whether it be an earthquake or a storm like the one that we had or a volcanic eruption mm-hmm. you, know, you can imagine there are places in the world where cities have essentially been built around active volcanoes uh, vesuvius in italy being one example and people say, well, you know, that's just the way Naples grows, you know, but it's given the inevitability that that volcano is going to erupt explosively. It's kind of crazy to think about people just accepting that as fate. You know, yeah. For example. Yeah, it's, I, I agree. And, and I would like to oh, go ahead. Sorry, hand, continue your thought. On the other hand, there's, you know, aside from keeping people off and away from volcanoes, um, you know, there's not much you can do. 
because yeah. the power of a volcanic, explosive volcanic eruption is so large that it's going to overwhelm anything that humans can do to protect themselves from it, other than to scurry away as fast as you can. Yeah, um, literally. I, I want to challenge you on the academic thought because you said that about being an academic and I get that. Well, no, because the, here's why. You, I mean, academic about earth sciences and you I mean, you're an earthquake nerd, right? Like you love that stuff. But the reality is, is you love it for a reason. And um, the reasons behind it, right, are are okay to talk about. And I think to your point, I mean, um, Kalauea, La Palma right now are erupting, right? So in September uh, in Hawaii and in Spain, volcanoes started to erupt and if the volcano wants to erupt there's no engineering bridge in the world that's going to stand that right so we have to keep we have to truly keep grounded in this conversation about how powerful it is so i think that does lead into that part where you say you know we think that we can mitigate that what do you do when there's lava coming down you got to get out of the way la palma is uh being reshaped essentially by by eruptive activity and uh you know, people, ultimately the volcano will settle down and people will try to pick up the remains of their lives. Um, I'm not sure exactly how they're going to do it because it's all covered with sterile, you know, fresh rock, but they will try. And probably La Palma will be inactive for another generation or so, and then it'll happen all over again. And uh, maybe people just accept that as part of uh, fate or the way their lives are going to play out. Um, uh, yeah, I do love geology. I love this topic of hazards because ultimately it would be nice to be able to reduce that that injury and, and destruction that these events cause. But I think I'm fully aware that, you know, you're never going to bring it to zero. There's no way. You're not going to bring it close to zero because the the most extreme events will overwhelm anything that humans can do to try and cope with them. The really big ones. Yeah. Well, and, and I think that the place I come to in this is when we get back into the engineering part, you know, when you speak of it that way, then we can look at things in BC. And I think we find a whole new level of gratitude. We find a whole new level of gratitude for all those volunteers that pack those oh, yeah. sandbags to protect yeah. those levees. You look at the Coquihalla. The Coquihalla shouldn't exist. It is ridiculous. And it's been there for a couple decades now. Yeah. And it like it is ridiculous what they went through to build that road and what they're going through uh, east of Golden to fix that part, right? Absolutely. Rogers Pass and all those. And yeah. so it does bring us to the place of gratitude and go, look at these people that maintain these roads, that save you if you get in trouble on these roads. Look at the engineers that actually had some sort of, I don't know what they were high on to think that they could build that there, but they did it and it's working and it doesn't, it's not always perfect, but it's been working. And isn't that a much nicer place to look at this? i go, holy well, cow. It, it is. And, uh, you know, you see the best in, in humanity come out after a disaster. I mean, it's really all we're, we're deluged with bad news. But, you know, there are some really good news stories after this disaster. People stepping in and helping, uh, you know, people who have livestock on the Sumas Prairie, for example, it's flooded. They, they step up to the plate and go and help those people about, you know, move those livestock out as mm -hmm. best they can. And they provide meals to people that are displaced from their homes. So to me, we need good news stories. And, you know, people do respond. I think the best in humanity comes out from my perspective after a disaster. And 
Um, you know, another example is the Calgary flood, the Southwest Alberta floods. People stepped up to the plate on that, you know, and the response of uh, Calgarians and people living in the High River was extraordinary, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe we should focus a little more from, you know, taking away some lessons about how humans can help other, you know, people can help other people from the way they behave after a disaster. And that's a common story, you know. It's common after hurricanes in the southern U.S., the eastern U.S., and it's common on La Palma now with the eruptive activity. People are taking others into their homes that haven't been destroyed by these flows. Yeah. So I kind of think that's an important, you know, important thing to take away. And uh, yeah, I, you know, kind of to your point of uh, how they manage some of this infrastructure, like. Think of the Fraser Canyon. You know, you drive through the Fraser Canyon, you wouldn't believe that they would build a highway in a place like that. Yeah. And yet they have, and it has been the lifeline for so long for getting uh, rail goods and, and trucked goods from Vancouver to the rest of the country. And without it, we wouldn't we wouldn't easily be able to do that. We have limited options in British Columbia. We have to, uh, you know, provide corridors in landslide prone valleys and flood prone valleys. So to some extent, you got to live with it, except the reality that you're going to have disruptions to that from time to time. And it is remarkable, you know, that they are fairly limited and it takes a big event to really shut things down for any length of time. We just happened to experience one last week. Yeah, right. And, and uh, yeah, I find that this is great. John Clegg, Earth Sciences, Simon Fraser, and, and, um, it really is, when you take the lens of how powerful the earth is, like you talk about when you share the power, John, I think it gives us the reminder of how grateful we can be for the amount of work that humanity's done to get us here. Instead of being so critical saying, well, why would they put a road there? Well, you know what? They did. And was it the right or wrong, or is it the best one? Maybe at the time it was the best, but it's not. Who cares? They'll figure that out. The reality is, is that when we look at this, not from this entitled place of Mother Earth, Mother Earth owns us or owes us something, and from the place of, holy cow, like this is, and not only that, they're talking about train lines opening on Tuesday and Wednesday again. Yeah. I mean, it's been a week. How absurd is that, that it's yeah, that they, quick? Yeah, it's, they've done a yeoman's job 24 hours a day, and... uh yeah, I mean, we live on an active planet fundamentally, and we have to accept the fact that we're going to have nasty things happen to some of us some of the time. And we do the best we can to cope with it, but we will never eliminate, um, you know, the these events. These events are going to happen, and uh, we just have to live as best we can with them to try and uh, reduce their impacts on us. Yeah. It's that place right there that you just said. That's the place where we find gratitude for this gorgeous marble that we live on. Uh, John Clegg, thanks so much, man. I appreciate Uh, the conversation as always. Love chatting with you. Thank you, Shane. I'd like to talk to you as well. This is The Shift Podcast. Handy Andy Barrar, Disco Andy is here with us on The Shift. Oh, yeah. Yeah, baby. All right, so Andy, what about you, uh, impactful teacher? Now you live in Surrey now. Did you did you go to school in Surrey too? That's right. Actually, the uh, elementary school that I went to is still not far from where I live. Uh, fun fact: when I have to go vote 
I actually have to go into that elementary school and I always look at all the pictures of the kids and in kindergarten, there I am right in the front row sticking my tongue out. And every time I look at it, I laugh because oh, not much fun. has changed, Shane. Not much has changed since that I was that little five-year-old. The, uh, the school feels so much smaller when you're bigger, doesn't it? Oh, I, I just remember going into the gym and, and I remember they had like climbing, like this is like in the eighties, you know, like the, the kind of stuff that they allowed us to do was, yeah, was I dangerous. guess considered dangerous these days. But yeah, that gym, I used to think it was huge and it's so small when, when you're an adult, <laughs> it's, it's quite That's funny. Cool. I love it. So was there one particular teacher there that, that really, really influenced you? I did. And I actually have a funny story, Shane, uh, this teacher, I was doing an interview on CBC radio and this teacher slid into my DMs on Facebook. She messaged me and she goes, was that the little Andy that I remember from Lena Shaw Elementary? And I was like, oh my God, Miss Anchor. Like I have not talked oh, to you fun. since I was in elementary. She, she remembered everything about me. For some reason, she even remembered my dad. And I don't figure that one out, how she remembered. Wow. She remembered my dad's name. And wow. she was like, you were such a such a good little boy. You know, you just loved to learn and you were so polite and respectful and i was just like wow i cannot well, believe after all these years she still remembered me that might be one of those private conversations you have later you know find out <laughs> what was going on <laughs> all right handy andy barrar it's handyandymedia.com andy does diy he does gadgets and so much more uh it's great to have you back pal the beard's looking good andy's growing out his beard very salt and pepper andy's got like this jet black hair right if you, if you want to check it out you can always go to uh, the shift uh, just shiftheads.ca website and um and you can see it on the Facebook group. He posts stuff there. He's got jet black hair and is really coming in salty on the chin yes. there, big fella. You inspired me. Your beard inspired me. I was like, yes. wow, Shane looked so good with that beard. And you know, it's winter time, and I'm trying to stay mm -hmm. warm. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to just go full out. Just let it grow. I'm not going to mm -hmm. touch it. Um, I haven't decided when I'm going to shave it, but it'll probably maybe in spring. We'll just we'll see how it looks. Every week I see nice. you. So it's just going to yeah. get bigger and bigger, Shane. Mine's only going to last for... Uh, Another six weeks here, and then it'll be done after Christmas. Once I uh, once I contribute to my elf duties, making sure uh, I help the big man get all the gifts out, then uh, this will go away. But mine's white, if you don't know uh, from the photos. Okay, where are we going here on the conversation front, Andy? Uh, snoring. Snoring with a headband as a fix. That seems weird. Well, you know, there's a, a lot of sleep tech out there. Well, this one is really geared towards if you have a partner that snores and you can't sleep, it drives you nuts. Say you're trying to sleep or you get up in the middle of the night and all you can hear is that snoring. It's called the Hoomband Audio Headband. And basically, it's like a typical headband that you would wear, but it's got this breathable fabric. So in a way, it's almost like a little blanket for your forehead. But on each side are these flat earphones and they're Bluetooth. And so they sit flat so you can sleep with it, not a problem, it's super comfortable. But what's great is you can then pair it to your phone and it comes with a corresponding app that has these soundscapes and sound waves like, oh. like the, the sound of rain hitting um, a window. It has the sound of a, of a fan, the white noise that you would hear on radio or a TV. So have all these different types of sounds to block out whatever it is that's distracting you. So it could be even just the noise from the street traffic if, if that's bugging you or a barking dog. Uh, this headband is really going to help you to just take all that away when you go to bed at night. So it's something that you should check out. You can go to my website to look at it, handyandymedia.com, or you could go to the Shift Heads uh, Facebook group 
at uh, shiftheads.ca. By the way, Shane, I just checked the numbers. Yeah. You're at 591 people for the group. So we need nine Close. Canadians to hit 600 today. And I have 149 <laughs> followers on my Facebook page. So if I could just get one to hit 150, I'll sleep well <laughs> tonight. I don't need a headband. I just need one extra person to follow me on Facebook. Andy is uh, Andy is the uh, Shiftheads group cheerleader uh, here. That's neat, that headband thing. And with whom band, here's what I think. Here's where I think the idea came from. I think it was human headband or something like that. And they're like, we should call it human. And they were like, ooh, whom band. That's what I imagine that the name came from. Makes more sense now when you talk about it as a white noise background sound thing. Yeah, like, and so that it has two different ways. You could actually listen to like a bedtime story if you wanted to to help you, you know, induce sleep if you're having trouble falling asleep at night. But the soundscape that will actually play all night long. It has ten hours of battery life, so that soundscape is going to continuously play to cancel out whatever it is. It could be your husband or your wife snoring who denies that they snore, but you actually have tangible proof that they do. Well, you're going to be able to cancel that out with this whom band audio sleep band again just go to my website to check it out i have a link there where you can purchase it as well online at handyandymedia.com see you're so good at promoting things but you're missing the real opportunity here or listen to the shift huh well or you can listen well they're listening to us right now and they can yeah, listen to you head, at night if, the, it, if they want to get the snoring out of their uh yeah. out of their ears we get lots of great compliments from people saying, I love your show. You put me to sleep. I'm not sure that's a compliment, but thank you. <laughs> uh, what are we going here? DIY hacks that doctors are actually uh, supporting a little bit here? Yeah. So this is a fantastic uh, little hack that it was patients that created this hack. Diabetes patients created it for other diabetes patients. Now, for anybody that has type 1 diabetes, they're probably familiar what's called these continuous glucose monitors. This is like the most fantastic tech. I just absolutely love this tech. What it does is it measures your glucose, your blood glucose, 24 hours a day. So you could eat a meal and see how that meal affects your blood glucose. Well, that's one type of device that they use. But they have another one, which it actually delivers insulin for diabetes patients. So typically, they have to measure with this one device and then use another device to, to administer the, the insulin. Well, what they did is they figured out a hack, all of these diabetes patients figured out a hack and started sharing this online about how you could use a Raspberry Pi and these two devices to basically connect them together so that if your insulin does go up or so your blood sugar goes up, then insulin will automatically get released. So this is fantastic because they can set it up and they don't have to worry. And what medical doctors have seen patients do this even though there are commercial ones that are way more expensive, they see these, these patients create this hack and it works and they're actually endorsing it now because of the peace of mind that it's been giving these diabetes patients. So it just shows you there's a whole new thing called citizen science where you're having user-driven open source medical technology by patients for patients. And I think this is a fantastic movement that we're seeing online and hopefully we'll see it uh, more of it in the future. Just to clarify for everybody, the Raspberry Pi is uh, a tiny, tiny, tiny Linux computer about as big as a man's wallet. Uh, it's really only good at running one or two things at a time. It's not like Windows where it has massive graphic interfaces, although you can get those for it, but they're about 110 bucks. 
and they're super simple. They don't do much, but what they do do, they do very, very well. And when you're using them for one or two tasks like that, uh, people love them. People use these for the gaming emulators. They use them for Roku. They use them all over the place. I'm familiar with them from one of my businesses. We use them a ton as a product. DIY Disco Andy, Handy Andy Barrar is here Ooh. on the shift, giving us some insight of all these things that we like to nerd out about. At the Apple Store today, looking for replacement AirPod because one went missing. And it's not that expensive. Actually, pretty good. They handle that well. I always said, Andy, that... When Samsung catches up to Apple with service departments, that's when they can be taken seriously because it really is the ability to walk into the store. I don't even think they look at them in the back. They have some magic wand. They wave over their devices, and then all of a sudden they're like, hey, we fixed it, and it's a brand-new computer or something. Like They just copy it over and hand you a new one. I don't know what they do. But until these other companies catch up to what they do in the Apple store, um, they're going to lead the pack. Well, and they have, you know, Samsung actually tried to copy Apple by creating the Samsung store. Uh, same kind of concept, but they really haven't done it like Apple has. But that said, Shane, you know that there's been this huge movement globally about the right to repair people, you know, be able to fix the devices that break because a lot of companies, Apple included, have made it really, really hard or next to impossible to fix these devices that do a little DIY repair shop at your own home because we, we either didn't have the tools, we didn't have the parts or the actual hardware replacement kits. Um, but now it looks like Apple has been listening to both regulators and the public and are going to start creating a program where people can fix their own devices at home and they'll provide the same parts and manuals and everything you need to know that they do for service shops. They're now going to provide the same service to their customers. And I think this is a long time coming and hopefully other companies like Samsung and and Google will do the same thing because that's the one thing that we really missing uh, in the smartphone world is the ability to fix these phones. And you can imagine the frustration, someone like me, Shane, handy, Andy, a phone breaks, I just have to go and get a new one because there's really, it's next to impossible to fix a phone. It's almost more affordable to get a new one. And that's quite sad. And hopefully we can change that in the near future. Well, there's, there's a lot of tricks that they had at the Apple store and they had, um, you know, when you got your screen replaced, if you went to a third party, get your screen replaced, they can tell if you would go and try to do it yourself, they could tell they had these lit used to have these litmus strips inside that if it was exposed to water, the color would change. So even if you just dipped it in for a second before they were water resistant, they would know if water was involved. Like there was all kinds of sneaky tricks they were doing. There was a bill I think that was put forward in the United States about this because the integration of all the parts and the fact that there was no tools to fix it meant people spent more on phones. Good for the company. But they claim that we're going to be more eco. And what a great way to be more eco if your Bluetooth dies than to be able to replace the Bluetooth module on your phone and keep the phone alive. That's far more responsible uh, in the, the the reusability of the phones than it is to just toss it. And I think that has a big impact. Well, for most people, there's three things that are going to break on your phone. It's either going to be your screen that you're going to need yeah. to replace because it's cracked. It'll be your battery because you've just used it so many times that you wish yeah. you could just replace that battery and bring it back to life. Or it's the camera. The camera, the lens might get scratched and you want to replace that. Now, Apple is saying that that's how they're going to start off with those three 
parts they're going to start providing. In the future, this is actually going to start in the U.S. next year. They haven't announced about Canada, but what they're going to start with, with is with the iPhone 12 and the iPhone 13, the ability to fix those. And then they said in the future, they'll actually move into laptops so you could fix your MacBooks in the future as well. Because back in the day, Shane, you could buy a MacBook and if you wanted to get more RAM, you could buy yeah. your third-party RAM and put it in. Then they started to solder it right onto the motherboard. And that's when I stopped using MacBooks because I was the guy that grew up building computers. And so I've always wanted to be able to soup up a computer. And as soon as I couldn't do that on, on MacBooks, that was the last one I bought and I moved, you know, towards like Dell. But we've, again, we've never seen that in the smartphone world. You can't just make your smartphone and say, I want this, I want this kind of camera and this kind of screen. We've never had that ability. And until a, a, a manufacturer creates that, we're still going to have to be able to fix our phones. And, you know, this is the step in the right direction, but they've had so much pressure, like you mentioned, not just from the public, but governments as well, just to reduce the electronic waste that we're seeing, you know, all these companies try to talk about how they're reducing their carbon footprint. They could do that if they just let us fix these phones, especially yeah. when they're just minor, minor scratches on your screen that you just want to fix. You know, it's, it, it, it costs a lot, whether you go to the Apple store or to one of the third party repair shops. Sometimes it just costs way too much that most people just end up buying a new phone. And that's just a, a reality that we have to change. Well, and, and the back of some of the some of the models of phones, if once the back broke, you were done. You're like, nah, just get a new phone. And I mean, that's absurd to think that you would just toss the phone because the back had a crack in it and things like that. HandyAndyMedia.com is the website. We've only got about a minute here, Andy, to talk about Peloton for kids causing foul ball. Yeah, so the company Little Tykes that makes toys for kids, they've created a, a, essentially a Peloton for kids. They call it the Pelican. And it's a stationary bike for three-year-olds to seven-year-olds that mimics the, a Peloton. It has a little tablet that they can watch uh, screens. They said from their research that kids want to mimic their parents when they're on the Peloton. But if you ask me, Shane, I don't know what you think. I just think it's a bad idea. Let the kids go bike outside like kids. And you don't need them on a stationary bike to try to lose weight watching a tablet. That is just the wrong direction that we should have our kids. Put them back outside. Let kids be kids, if you ask me. Uncle Andy, coming to the show here. Look at this, taking care of the kids. Not only does he give you five bucks, but he'll uh, come to the show and uh, and give you the, the good stuff. I guess that it's never a, never too early to get people into the habit of exercise as exercise. They're kids, though. I agree. Just go and dig a hole, eat some dirt, fall off your bike, scrape your elbows, call it a day. Seems like the nice way to go. Yeah, if anything, we should get off the Pelotons and be kids and follow the kids outside and do what they do. I think that we could learn a lot from the, the little ones. Boy, he came to play today. Andy ah, Barrar, I love it. This is great. <laughs> I love the passion behind all of this. And you're right, man. I couldn't agree more. We need to all – we. I always sort of say this, that we, you know, we're supposed to, as adults, teach kids how to prepare to be adults. But then really, when you think about it, once you have kids, it's kids that teach us how to live life properly. And I think you nailed it right there. Thanks, buddy. It's great to see your face. My pleasure, dude. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.